0: thank you so much for joining me here on the dogs that i saw this week podcast where we talk about all the cutest dogs that i saw this week and let me tell you guys this is going to be one hell of an episode this week not to spoil anything but i saw some huskies i saw a golden retriever and it was a very cute golden retriever and you know what i also saw some doodle breeds that I didn't even know existed but before we get into any of that I just have to let you know that this is kind of unfortunately not the cute dogs that I saw this week podcast Um, this is the photo friends podcast and thank you so much for joining me for what will certainly be another thrilling and action-packed I don't know, episode of the Photo Friends podcast, where we will be getting into part two of my series on the history of landscape photography. And that's correct. I did say part two and guys, as I've been going through this research here, there's quite a lot to talk about. So this is actually going to end up being a three-part episode. So uh, in this, the second part of the series, we're going to cover the first half of the 20th century, Uh, basically everything from 1900 to the 1950s. And then in the uh, third installment, we'll cover the 1950s onward. Okay, so just a couple of caveats that I want to get out here before we get into the next part of the history of landscape photography. Here, uh, I want to mention, you know, um, Joseph Nissiforini. We talked about him in the first episode. He captured the first um, permanent photograph in 1825. Uh, That is definitely true. I mentioned in the episode that it took multiple days of exposure uh, in order to produce that photograph. Uh, It kind of depends on the source that you're looking at. I have a source here, um, Helmut, Gernshem, uh, who claims that it was only eight hours of exposure. Um, so it kind of depends on what source you're reading, what source that you want to believe. I guess the only real way to do it is to get some uh, bitumen powder. I think I called it butumen powder in the last episode. It's actually pronounced bitumen powder. Uh, yeah, you're gonna have to uh, put that on a plate and expose that and then you'll tell me. How long it took to capture a photograph. <laughs> uh, I would also be remiss if I didn't mention the contributions of one Louis Daguerre, um, who is actually a friend and correspondent of Niepce and helped to improve uh, the process of photography. Um, essentially, Uh, taking out that bitumen, replacing it with silver iodide, and then exposing it again with mercury vapor, um, a technique that was able to provide a lot more contrast and sharpness in photos. So definitely uh, an interesting thing to consider and didn't want to overlook the contributions of Daguerre here. Okay, so now we can finally get into the next part of the series here. I did mention that we would be starting with Ansel Adams, (laughs) uh, but there is a figure that I want to touch on here even before we get into Ansel Adams, uh, possibly the most uh, famous photographer of all time. So before we get into Adams here, I just want to touch on a photographer who I believe is incredibly important, but is often overlooked. And that's Anne Brigman. Uh, she was a landscape portrait and nude photographer, I guess you could say, uh, who did most of her work in California in the early 1900s. I think if you look at her photography, that you'll agree with me that she was ahead of her time. The incorporation of the human figure uh, with the complementary curves and shapes of the female body being embedded into the landscape, um, just incredibly thought-provoking and something that I really don't see uh, in, you know, landscape photography up until this point. Another really interesting thing about Brigman's work, uh, it's not always sharply in focus. She uses soft focus to create a dreamlike quality in her work. Most of her work is actually portraits of either her, you know, self-portraits or portraits of her sister. Uh, They would go on long expeditions into the wilderness together in order to capture uh, these magnificent images of often naked women uh, incorporated into landscape photography in a very natural way. And as I mentioned earlier, there's this blending of genres going on in her work, you know, it can't be said in, that it's strictly landscape, there's uh, elements of portrait and nude photography as well, and I think just the the density of meaning in her work, right, uh, this relationship between women in nature, uh, this ability of A woman to grab a camera and then, you know, start to redefine her role um, in the world, uh, not based on, you know, social relationships with men and something like that. So there's definitely um, feminist themes in her work, uh, the relationship between women and nature, but also the ability and the power of women to define who they are themselves. All right, now we can finally get into the king of landscape photography. I don't think uh, very many people would dispute that. Ansel... Adams uh, he's most famous for his work in the Yosemite Valley in California he had a prolific career uh, starting in the 1920s and really just kept shooting all the way up into the 1980s when he passed away he deserves a lot of recognition as a photographer uh, not only what he did for the reputation of photography as a discipline as a profession um, but also his contributions to the technical side of photography uh, his creation of of the zone system, essentially breaking down photos into 10 stops from the blackest black to the whitest white and making sure that you have kind of, as I understand it, like 10 degrees of variation from super white to super black. He was also a founding member of the F64 group along with famous landscape photographers like Willard Van Dyke and Edward Weston. The F64 uh, there refers to Obviously aperture, Um, the group were proponents of the idea that you should shoot with a narrow aperture, you shouldn't be uh, shooting super wide and having uh, shallow depth of field, you should have everything in your photos in uh, sharp focus. And Adams is also well known for his contributions to conservation, uh, using his photos, using his reputation, using his clout to uh, push for more conservation, uh, you know, government efforts at conservation and uh, lobbied for the creation of national parks like Kings Canyon. So I just want to talk a little bit about Ansel Adams' work uh, and sort of its impression on me. I find it's very reminiscent of Chinese landscape paintings, actually, when you have especially his work of mountains uh, with the clouds over the peaks of the mountains, the weather interacting uh, with the landscape. There's also a thing that he'll do where he'll place the horizon really high in the frame uh, and then the entire landscape sort of towers over you to me it's really meant uh, not just to capture the scene maybe as it was or as the camera saw it uh, but to emphasize how it felt and emphasize the real power and majesty of nature his work features uh, really heavy contrast as we talked about earlier that full tonal range from super super bright to super dark Uh, he was known for doing a lot of post-processing and using the uh, dodge and burn technique I really think that intentional is probably the best way to describe Ansel Adams as a photographer, uh, and he's very famous for a quote, you don't take a photo, you make it. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the uh, post-processing techniques that he was using, uh, improving, pioneering at the time. Uh, we should also note the cameras uh, that he was using at the time were usually medium and large format cameras uh, in order to help you picture these. Uh, it is still kind of those um, hilariously huge and cumbersome cameras that we talked about in the first episode. I mentioned uh, kind of jokingly that they have big accordions on the front of those um It's actually called bellows, uh, that like accordion type of thing that moves the lens closer or farther uh, from the plate in order to pull focus. To speak on the meaning of Adam's work, I think uh, there's themes of the sublime. uh, There's also themes of the inherent value of nature and definitely uh, comes through strongly just the... I get the contrast, I guess, uh, between the feeling of safety and security that you can have in nature, right? I get that uh, from a lot of his work, uh, but also just the, the raw, unrelenting power of nature. Um, maybe the unpredictability of nature comes through as well. So now I want to cover another female photographer who I believe is key uh, for understanding the trajectory of landscape photography. And that is a woman by the name of Imogen Cunningham. It's a pretty weird name. I had to look up the origin. It's a Greek name. I do think it's funny that she's a photographer and her name is Imogen. Cunningham is best known as a friend of Ansel Adams and a member of the F64 group, uh, but I believe that this kind of does a disservice to her. I actually think that she was a more dynamic photographer uh, than Ansel Adams. I mean, <laughs> he did great landscapes, but she did, you know, uh, landscapes, portraiture, Uh, Still life, nudes, street photography, um, really every phase of her career uh, could be another photographer's entire career, Uh, one of the things that I find uh, most intriguing about her. I think if you were to try to find influences uh, on Imogen Cunningham's work, you would have to look to two places uh, predominantly. Again, it is difficult to pin down since she did so much different work in such a variety of work throughout her career. Uh, but I think that pictorialism is a movement that you really have to look at. Uh, pictorialism emphasized soft focus um, in order to create kind of dreamy, Um, photography, it basically looks like a charcoal drawing, probably the best uh, example uh, out of Imogen's body of work uh, is Dream, a photograph from 1910. Uh, I think this illustrates the uh, pictorial approach well. I think in order to understand Imogen, you also should look to uh, Gertrude Casabier, I hope I'm pronouncing that, close to okay. (laughs) Uh, She did some really amazing portraits of Native American women Another key to really appreciating Cunningham's work, uh, you have to look at her work in the darkroom, like Ansel Adams. Uh, she studied and practiced post-production a lot, uh, was constantly trying to improve uh, techniques within the darkroom, uh, basically those post-production techniques to take the raw photo out of your camera and then you know uh, manipulate that in order to produce exactly what's inside of your head or, you know, um, convey exactly the point that you're trying to make. I think that she was one of the early masters of that. When we look at her nude and still life work, uh, one thing that really strikes me uh, is her her command of composition, right? Um, The use of shadows, uh, the use of triangles, a lot of sharp angles, uh, 45 degree angles in her work. She's kind of the anti-Emerson, right? We talked about Emerson in the last episode. Uh, His argument was really that things should be photographed the way that they are, uh, that the goal of photography is to show uh, natural life the way that it is. With Cunningham here, we have a completely different approach. Uh, the use of heavy manipulation, uh, even, you know, manipulating uh, with post-processing, but also, you know, um, using multiple exposures to create portraits that are reminiscent of cubism. I find that much of her work can be described as otherworldly, and this is all uh, a manifestation of her ability to manipulate not only when she was shooting, uh, but after the fact. As I studied her body of work and uh, really looked at all the different periods uh, in her career, what started to truly emerge um, was this idea that photography has at this point really become established as a form of art. Uh, You know, photography now is truly a conversation with the larger art world uh, particularly movements within painting and you can see this just by looking at the relationships that uh, Cunningham had in her life with Ansel Adams uh, but also you know corresponding and collaborating with the likes of Frida Kahle and surrealist artist Man Ray So in part three, we're going to talk about a bunch more landscape photographers, and we're going to get into, you know, their technique and also the meaning of their photography of their work. Uh, I think it's super important, though, where we stand right now um, to just evaluate how far we've come uh, with the art of photography. Uh, as we learn in part one, photography uh, originally was conceived of as more of a tool, and we saw some of the ways of uh, how photography was intertwined with history, right, um, with the conception of, uh, you know, America, Americans, uh, what it means to be American, what the land of America is, right? All of that type of stuff. Here, we see the evolution of that, right? Especially uh, with women photographers emerging and using the art form to push that uh, political points about women being able to define their own role in society. And obviously, we're talking about the 20th century here, um, you really can't get away from the effect that World War One and World War Two had on uh, the trajectory of photography, the trajectory of art in general. And here we see artistic movements that were very directly a reaction to uh, the madness of world wars, um, such as surrealism and Dadaism, really being uh, interwoven with the history of photography and, uh, you know, inseparable from the development of that art form. I think it's also really important to touch on the developing technology of photography in this period, uh, in the first uh, episode of this series, we kind of talked a little bit uh, about how we take for granted these days the simplicity of the process of shooting photos. Uh, we didn't really talk much about uh, how we take post processing for granted, right? Um, the ability to take your raw photos and just throw them into Lightroom uh, and you know uh, grab some presets and uh, have final beautiful photos uh, ready to print in seconds. Uh, it wasn't the case back in the day, right? Like um, the if you research a little bit about the burn and dodge process. Uh, These days, it's just a tool in Photoshop, but it it was quite the process back in the day, right? So just interesting uh, how much we take even shooting a photo, but also uh, the process of post-processing, how we take that for granted these days. I'd also like to talk a little bit more just about um, the technology of cameras themselves. You know, apart from the film side, uh, cameras in this period are getting smaller um, they're getting more module, you know, with the ability to change lenses and stuff like that. You know, there's also the rise of the 35mm format uh, with notable cameras like Leica's Argus A, And we see some developments in medium format cameras as well, uh, with Hasselblad coming out with the 1600F in 1948. Um, Not only was this camera much smaller uh, than previous medium format cameras, uh, it was also modular, so you would be able to change lenses, um, change the viewfinder, things like that. I should also note that uh, Hasselblad is the camera company that will eventually make the cameras that are used by Apollo 11 to photograph the moon. And of course, I need to mention Roloflex as well, uh, who really did some revolutionary stuff uh, when it comes to film cameras. Uh, One particular model to uh, investigate further if you're interested is the Roloflex 2.8, which was introduced in 1949. So as you can see, if you're a photographer in the 1950s, you're already standing on the shoulders of giants. At this point, um, most of the technical kinks have been worked out, you know, you've got uh, the zone system to take advantage of, you have all of these uh, post-production techniques that have been developed by Ansel Adams and others. And you're benefiting from the fact that photography is now truly considered a art form, that it is intertwined with some of the biggest and most important uh, creative movements ever in history. So next episode, we're finally going to look at some modern photographers and... um, My assumption is that we will continue to see some very interesting interplay here, uh, how history is influencing photography and how photography is influencing history. Before I get out of here, I just want to thank you for tuning into this episode. I hope that you found it interesting and inspiring. I hope that uh, you can incorporate some of this into your own photography. <laughs> uh, thanks again for tolerating the nasliness of this recording. Uh, hopefully my voice will be back to normal pretty soon check out our Instagram photo underscore friends underscore pod to see some work by the photographers we talked about. Until next time, don't go making phony calls. Please stick to the seven digit numbers you used to.